Welcome to the New Testament Review, where every episode we discuss an influential piece of New Testament scholarship. I'm Ian Mills. And I'm Laura Robinson. And we both hold PhDs from Duke University. Today we're talking about James Dunn's 1983 lecture, then article, The New Perspective on Paul. This was a Manson Memorial Lecture given at the University of Manchester. This is the article that coined the phrase, the new perspective on Paul. And Dunn, in this piece, is going to be arguing that Sanders gave us a new perspective on Judaism, but failed to give us a new perspective on Paul. That is, Sanders failed to integrate his account of Paul's theology into the new account of Judaism presented in his book, Paul and Palestinian Judaism. Two background resources that will be really useful for you while you're listening to this episode are our episode on Christopher Stendhal, Paul and the Introspective Consciousness of the West, and of course, E.P. Sanders, Paul and Palestinian Judaism. This article is a response to, explicitly, the phenomenon of this new evaluation in primarily Christian scholarship. You know, of course, rabbis had known this for a while, of how Judaism actually worked. And the problem of framing it is this legalistic religion that Paul was trying to push away from. Okay, we've done this on several previous episodes where we laid out the sort of history of scholarship on Paul and Judaism. But basically, the Lutheran, Protestant, old perspective is that Judaism is a religion of works righteousness and legalism, and Sanders comes along and gives us covenantal nomism. This realization that no, in fact, ancient Judaism and indeed rabbinic Judaism was a religion of grace that had a mechanism built in for repentance that the law was not viewed as a burden or as a pettifogging legal code, but rather as a gift from God that helped them maintain their covenant relationship with God. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is the place from which Dunn is starting, that Sanders has challenged this past Lutheran reading of the way Judaism works and notes that covenantal gnomism insists that people do not have to work their way to God. They're simply part of the covenant and respond faithfully and that atonement is part of this process. But here's what Dunn is seeing. Dunn says that Sanders cannot account for the fact that Paul turned really dramatically and surprisingly from the faith he had been raised in towards something that it seems, according to Sanders, is pretty unrelated to what Paul had previously believed. Paul went from being this covenantal gnomist who believed that he was born as part of the covenant, as part of the people of God, and that he kept the Torah as part of his faithful relationship with God, and then moved completely to this to totally new system that's all about Jesus and being in Christ, right? So for Dunn, he sees this and is struck by the fact that there seems to be this fundamental problem of why would Paul jump so dramatically from one completely different theological system to a whole new one? Right. Dunn says Sanders sees Paul's conversion as really a conversion, as a radical break from Judaism, that some terminology is transferred over, but with radically and totally new meanings for Paul's new Christianity. Sanders famously said something like, Paul's problem with Judaism was that it wasn't Christianity. And you can go back and listen to our Sanders episode, where Sanders argues that the center of Paul's theology is this mystical participation in Christ. And Dunn is going to critique this. In fact, he cites an observation by Morna Hooker, who sort of anticipates what he's doing here, that actually Judaism as described by Sanders is similar to nothing so much as forms of Pauline theology. It strikes Dunn and Hooker and others 
that covenantal gnomism, with some terms changed out, might actually be a good description of Pauline theology, but Sanders certainly didn't think this. And there's a great irony here that Dunn and the new perspective on Paul, Dunn, and Wright are often the foil for the Paul within Judaism camp. But I think it's ironic the extent to which Dunn, in making this move, in making this critique of Sanders, is actually anticipating much of contemporary scholarship on Paul, is actually anticipating the Paul within Judaism camp that's going to try to differentiate themselves from Dunn. So Dunn is picking up on this fundamental challenge that Sanders has introduced, which is the question, does Paul's theology build on Paul's theology that he previously had before Christ, when he was simply a faithful Jew? How do we understand whether or not there is continuity between what Paul used to believe and what he believes now? The place where Dunn starts building this out is Galatians 2.16, which is a passage in which Paul is recounting a dispute he had with Peter over the question of table fellowship between Jews and Gentiles. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood self-condemned. For until certain people came from James, he used to eat with Gentiles. But after they came, he drew back and kept himself separate for fear of the circumcision faction. The other Jews joined him in this hypocrisy, so that by this hypocrisy even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, You are a Jew, and yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is justified, we'll talk more about that word later, not by the works of the law, but through the faith of Jesus Christ. And we have come to believe in Christ Jesus, so that we might be justified by the faith of Christ, and not by doing the works of the law because no one will be justified by the works of the law. Dunn starts with this initial argument that Paul begins with the phrase, we know that. He argues that Paul introduces himself and Peter, we collectively, as Jews by birth and quote, not Gentile sinners. And Dunn argues that Paul is appealing here to a Jewish prejudice, the idea that Jews are not the same as Gentile sinners, that there's these different categories here going on of people who are part of the covenant and who have the Torah and are in this right relationship with God, and there are the Gentile sinners who are not there. Paul begins by invoking the, these categories of covenant and election, things that Sanders argues, of course, is central to the pattern of Jewish thought and the language of a, quote, Jewish prejudice is going to be key to what Dunn is going to argue Paul sees as wrong within current Jewish practice. Then Dunn argues that the justificatory language that Sanders thought for Paul just represented a wholly new system, a, whole, a wholly new way of talking about one's relationship to God, at least the way Paul is using it. Uh, Dunn is going to argue that Galatians 2.16 suggests this is continuous with Jewish thought. That according to Dunn, and this is one of these points of contention we'll talk about later, but let's try to get Dunn's argument on the table first, that according to Dunn, justification is a fundamentally Jewish idea that is God's acknowledgement of a people as part of his covenant people. In fact, Dunn is going to go further to say that actually justification by faith is itself a Jewish idea. But Paul is setting up this contrast between justification by works of the law and justification by faith, explicitly faith in Jesus. 
Dunn's argument here is drawing on language he sees in the Psalms and second Isaiah that God's righteousness is always linked with God's faithfulness to the covenant. Like God shows his righteousness by keeping the covenant. So for Dunn, what he wants to argue is that the righteousness of God and the right wising of God, these things are, you know, they have the same root word, that God's justification is God's acknowledgement of the covenant he has made with people. This is why Dunn can say in his argument that justification by faith is a Jewish idea, that the acknowledgement and belief in the covenant, in God's faithfulness to the covenant, is already an idea in the Hebrew Bible that Paul is drawing through here. Dunn is going to make the clarification that he doesn't think justification here is an initiatory act, but rather that justification is initial, repeated, ongoing, and ultimate. Uh, He sees the use of the future tense here in Galatians 2.16, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ, and no one will be justified by the works of the law. Those future tenses... And then Galatians 5, 5, that for through the Spirit, by faith, we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Again, righteousness and justification have the same root word. Um, that these look forward to a future justification, an ongoing justification. This idea that justification is not just something that gets you into the party. But as Sanders saw and understood covenantal nomism, that the law for Judaism was something that was part of maintaining an ongoing uh, covenantal relationship and membership that likewise justification the justification here is initial ongoing and future the thing dunn is bringing out here is that justification is being in the covenant it's being in the covenant relationship with god there's this past version of justification and by faith that paul is alluding to in history that justification by faith in the torah and by the 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 faithfulness of god to people who he has given his law to and keep it and now there's justification by faith in Jesus, which is this new thing that Paul has embraced. So both sides, Dunn is seeing justification by faith as being part of the covenant community. That's what it means to be justified. So to dig in a little bit further into this distinction between being justified by faith and justified by works of the law, this brings Dunn to the question of what are works of the law, right? If these are the two kinds of justification we're distinguishing between faith depending on what that might mean, in justification through works of the law. What is a work of the law then? And this is Dunn's real big intervention in scholarship. This is one of the things he's most often cited for. And that is that the works of the law refer specifically to covenantal works. That is, the particular observances of the law, like circumcision, food laws, and special days, uh, Sabbath, festivals, that are recognized as distinctively Jewish. And he appeals to references, Gentile references, to the Jewish law, to, Ju- to the Jewish lawgiver and distinctively Jewish practices. References you can find in Plutarch and Tacitus and Juvenal, these authors who know of Jews as characterized by a unique and distinctive set of practices, including circumcision, Sabbath observance, and food laws. So the way Dunn describes these customs, basically Sabbath, food laws, and circumcision, the way he describes these are as badges of covenant membership, right? They're not something you do to earn God's favor if you're Jewish. They're something that you do as an acknowledgement that you are part of the covenant and is part of the behavior that you do that is your part of covenant maintenance, right? So the distinction here is that 
Paul is not saying works of the law to mean all the things you're told to do in the Torah down to don't murder and don't commit sexual immorality. It's limited to these things that are, the way Dunn puts it, the badges of covenant faithfulness, right? So that you're not justified by doing those things, which seems to be the thing that they're arguing about in Galatians, which is specifically food, circumcision, Sabbath, that kind of thing. It's a, th- Those are the things that don't justify you, is what he says. And as a reminder, justification for Dunn just means acknowledgement that you're part of the people of God. So this whole thing, I think, makes a little more sense. You can see where Dunn's coming from if you start with that assumption, that every time we say justification, we mean uh, acknowledgement as part of God's covenant people. And of course, there's a plausible case to be made from Scripture that being circumcised, at least for males, is part of what it means to be a Jew, right? Uh, This is sort of foundational to Jewish identity. And Dunn anticipates an objection that food laws aren't really in the Torah what marks someone out as distinctively Jewish. They're not often named as foundational to Jewish identity. But Dunn rightly notices that in Second Temple texts, texts like Tobit, uh, the Maccabees, and Daniel, more and more, not eating the food of Gentiles becomes an identity marker. It becomes a distinctive thing that uh, Jews sort of champion and hold up under Gentile persecution. So there's a plausible case to be made that this had become more and more part of Jewish self-understanding in the Second Temple and Hellenistic periods. What Dunn is going to say then is that Paul's argument is that he is trying to move away from this idea that there are these distinct national and ethnic practices and that the covenant is now open to everyone regardless of their nationality and their ethnicity. And that instead of these badges that are specifically associated with one ethnicity and nation, the new badge of covenant membership is faith in Jesus Christ. And we should note here that Dunn goes in for the objective genitive reading, that faith in Christ by the covenant member is the new badge of covenant membership with God instead of national boundary markers. Right, so for Dunn, the faith in Christ makes the works of the law superfluous. They're no longer necessary because it is faith in Christ that marks you out now as part of the people of God, not the works of the law. And Dunn wants to point out the ways this is different from sort of the Lutheran old perspective reading. Uh, This works of the law are badges, not attempts to earn membership, right? Membership is still a gift. Membership is something received by grace. It's not, you're not working to achieve something. It's, he's totally taking on board Sanders' account of Judaism as a religion of grace with maintenance mechanisms built in. And likewise, the works of the law for Paul are not simply good works in general. It's not all kinds of righteousness. It's specifically covenantal works because, because one of the data points you have to wrestle with with Paul is he still thinks doing good works, being righteous, not sinning, is very important. <laughs> um, this still very much matters for Paul. Dunn's way of sort of solving that is saying, okay, the works of the law doesn't refer to just doing good, the way you might characterize the Lutheran reading of the text, but specifically these distinctively Jewish covenantal markers, these badges of Jewish identity. Dunn sees Paul arguing for a a new covenantal relationship with God that no longer has national distinctions between Jews and Gentiles. I want to make sure that we're characterizing everything Dunn has in this argument because he's gotten some pushback on these arguments that I think can be pushback against something he didn't say. 
Don is very clear that he does not think that Paul is arguing that the covenant with Israel is over. He argues that Paul says that the covenant has been broadened, that because of this new this idea of justification by faith in Christ, the covenant now includes Gentiles, but it does not exclude Israel. For Don, this is about broadening the scope of covenant, not changing its focus. So then we get to Dunn's account of what Paul thinks is wrong with his Jewish Christian opponents. And that is Dunn says that they have racialized and nationalized God's covenant. They have tied up too closely God's Torah, God's covenantal relationship with their racial and national identities. Such that Gentiles need to become Jews to participate in the covenant God has made with the world through Jesus. And I think there's something to be said here. There's some paper to be said here about the way Dunn's reading of Paul and the moralizing language he uses here and elsewhere for describing Judaism and Paul is shaped by sort of late 70s, early 80s, colorblind, post-racial aspirations. There's been a lot of literature about how, you know, the late 70s is really where we see post-racial vision of one humanity without borders and without nations is a very trendy thing right here. And while we should assess Dunn's reading of Paul as a historical reading of a historical figure, I think it's undeniable the way Dunn's description and Dunn's own moralizing language is shaped by these discourses in the 80s. And, and I think that the conversation around these broader issues of ethnic and racial identity, specifically, you know, with, with regard to the Jewish diaspora, I, I think there's there's been a lot of development on that front in the way we publicly talk and think about these things, which is probably why the language of national boundary markers hits our ear in a way that I think makes us kind of uncomfortable now. The idea of ethnic snobbery around diasporic uh, or minoritized communities, I think, is it, it's uncomfortable now. Absolutely. So we're going to go on to critique this piece, but let's first of all talk about things that I think Dunn gets right, or at least arguments that he makes are plausible or moving in plausible directions. And I'll start there. I think actually seeing Paul not as radically discontinuous with Judaism as Paul working within a sort of covenantal nomistic model is super plausible. I remember reading Sanders' description of ancient Judaism and thinking, wow, this sounds a lot like Paul, <laughs> um, uh, I had the same reaction as Morna Hooker and Dunn. And so I think I think not arguing for radical discontinuity, not arguing that, as Sanders does, that Paul is merely transferring over words and giving them brand new meanings is very plausible. Um, that Paul's language of justification, of righteousness, is meaningfully rooted in Second Temple Jewish thought about God, covenant, and righteousness. Yeah, I think I think at some point we should do um some episodes on the the Long and Eckers and just some of the stuff they've done on this because a lot of this covenant you know seizing on covenant ideas and covenant co- covenantal imagery and seeing this as informing Paul becomes a really broad stripe in Pauline scholarship and becomes really important. The idea of seeing Sanders as posing a challenge for Paul scholars and answering it does become th- a dominant theme of Pauline scholarship. After Sanders, and you know, Dunn is one of the first people who picks this up in the particular way. I think in in some ways you could argue that I, I think that tension Dunn is seeing b- b- between national practices 
and the question of faithfulness and like why this would be this huge argument for Paul in uh for Paul and Peter in Antioch, I I think he's anticipating some stuff that is gonna go in a totally different way a few years later. But when Lloyd Gaston starts writing uh his work on Paul and, and starts really publishing that in in sort of, you know, is one of the early steps in the Paul within Judaism movement, right? This idea that, you know, how do we reconcile the fact that Paul would have surely known that Jews aren't working their way to God through the Torah? And that they had a very different understanding of what this meant and how does this juxtapose differently against faith. You know, but when you get to the Paul within Judaism school, the way they're going to take this is that Paul doesn't actually have critiques of Judaism. That he thinks that the Jewish way of relating to God through the covenant is fine. And this new idea of salvation by faith in Jesus is how Gentiles get access to Israel's God, but this doesn't actually change anything about Jewish practice. That's eventually the way that side's going to go. It's very different from the new perspective. And it's worth noting that, like, one of the alternatives to picking up Dunn's challenge is just to accept, as some did between Sanders and Dunn, to just to accept that Paul got Judaism wrong, that Paul is just blatantly mischaracterizing, misrepresenting what Judaism is and was. And... It's not totally clear that Sanders is making that hard of a position, but I think that's a really rational way of reading Sanders, that what Paul is critiquing as Judaism isn't Judaism. So I think this is one thing that Dunn does well. Another point, and I'm not going to have the same solution as Dunn here, I do have real critiques and real problems with identity markers and this notion of badges of national identity, but this problem that Paul does care about what you do, Paul does care about you working, right? Faith working itself out in love. Paul does care about your behavior, including things that are prohibited in the Jewish law, that in the Torah. And Paul views this as binding on Gentiles, but doesn't want Gentiles to be circumcising themselves or observing food laws and Sabbath, presents a bit of a problem. There's a, there's a problem here of differentiating what I was calling you know, good works, moral behavior, from the works of the law that Paul is saying are unimportant. And the Lutheran way of, of, of saying that your righteousness doesn't matter at all, that good works and works of the law are the same thing, and Paul is saying none of that matters for justification, seems wrong to me as well. And Dunn's linking of these works of the law to the covenant God makes with the people of Israel specifically, is initially plausible to me. There, I think there's actually something there, something to the fact that works of the law are picking out things that are distinctively covenantal. I'm going to take that in a different direction, but I think that that starting point is probably right. This is where Ian and I are going to disagree. I, I actually don't think it works. I don't think works of the law as this sort of set of distinctive Jewish practices that don't include the whole of Torah. I don't think that works. I, I think there's a larger project that, that that has been done on reading Galatians and Romans together uh, on this issue and seeing the way in which Paul does not Paul does not reject the Torah outright. I agree with that. I'm not trying to imply that that's what Ian thinks. I don't think the idea that Paul doesn't think you should kill people and Paul doesn't think the Torah justifies. I don't think those ideas are in contradiction with each other. I think that, I, I think those ideas are perfectly confluent, right? That like the law is good. The law teaches good things. That, that this represents the will of God. 
and also to be rightwise justified freed as it has you know Romans six seven that's you know I, I think a really good translation of the way Dikaiao is used there is liberated or set free. I think for this there's this bigger issue that the Torah is good and it doesn't set free to do righteousness to be the you know the slaves of righteousness is the language Paul will eventually use. So I think th- that's where I see a bit of an issue that I don't think those ideas are as contradictory as some people have insisted. Right. I actually think, Laura, we're closer than you think we are. Yeah. Because I think this is exactly where I differ from Dunn, um, is this idea that the works of the law are just badges of identity, are just markers mm. of identity. Okay. And the faith in Christ is yeah. just a marker of identity. I think that's fundamentally wrong. Yeah. What I, I, I think Paul's argument assumes that faith in Christ is effectual. Like you said, it enslaves you to righteousness. <laughs> and so what the works of the law, Paul is saying, doesn't accomplish for Gentiles is this idea that the works of the law doesn't make you into the kind of person who do, does right behavior, who behaves morally. And I think this is, this is how I read the argument in Romans 1 and 2, that the, there are people who have the works of the law and are not rectified by them. And yet still some from among them do things like rob temples, commit adultery, etc., that it isn't effectual to accomplish this particular task. So I completely agree with you that the works of the law for Paul is a good thing. It did a, did a particular thing and a good thing. And I am with the Paul within Judaism camp that I don't see Paul saying Jews should stop mm-hmm. practicing these yeah, works of the law. I agree. What I see Paul saying is that it's faith in Jesus, or that's the objective reading. I think probably better is the subjective reading. That is Jesus's own faithfulness that justifies us, that, that does in fact fix us up. Um, so I, my real difference with Dunn here, I should probably back up and say, is that I just think he's fundamentally misreading Dikaiao language. That mm-hmm. this idea that Dikaiao means acknowledging you as part of the covenant of God is wrong. And I don't see evidence for this. Um, Wright has tried to supply some from the Dead Sea Scrolls, and we can talk about that someday in the future. Yeah. But I don't see evidence for that interpretation of the Dikaiao word. The word Dik, I mean, that, that the root is right or correct. Um, or straight, and dikaiao is to make someone right. It's to fix them. And I see that as what Paul is saying works of the law don't accomplish, but faith or the faithfulness of Jesus does accomplish. So I'm going to take a stab at phrasing what I've heard you say. The issue isn't that these practices are badges of the covenant. They don't mark as part of being the covenant. It's the idea that by being circumcised and keeping, keeping food laws and by observing Sabbath, you develop your moral abilities. You become this athlete of virtue is the language that shows up in Philo. And that it actually does make you more virtuous and more righteous. And that Paul is speaking back to that. Philo argues that getting circumcised prevents lust, for instance. Mm -hmm. And Paul is responding and not saying the works of the law are bad or evil. We should get rid of them. It's saying it doesn't accomplish this one thing that Philo says it accomplishes. I think Dunn has a real problem in seeing God's righteousness as his covenant faithfulness because he is saying that the strength of this reading is that it draws on the Hebrew Bible. And I just don't think it does. I don't think that actually happens. I think if you want to take this more, you know, like um, this more disconnecting move with Paul, that Paul's theology is actually born out of this like initial experience with Jesus and he's reading the Hebrew Bible through it. I don't think it's as much of a problem for you in that case if Paul is using the word dikaiao in a really distinctive way. 
I don't think that is as much of an issue. As I argued in our Richard Hayes episode, I do think covenantal faithfulness is part of and implied by God's righteousness, but not coextensive with it, the way Wright and Dunn seem to treat it. That is, God's own right status, whether or not God is being behaving correctly, behaving mm-hmm. justly, is how I understand dikaiao sune theu, the, the righteousness of God. And I think one of the things at stake in Romans is whether or not God has behaved rightly in setting up this covenant relationship with the Jewish people and whether he is abandoning or remaining faithful to the Jewish people. And Paul wants to say, yes, but it's also broader than that because it involves also right action towards Gentiles and just right action in general. That might be a place where we Mm -hmm. differ, where I think covenantal faithfulness captures an important aspect of God's righteousness in Romans, but isn't synonymous. Yeah, yeah. No, for sure. So, you you know, we talked about things like objective and subjective genitive and these, you know, the definition of justification, the definition of dikaio and the definition of works works of the law. I I, I think it it does go to show how important these seemingly small exegetical details are and how many hinge points there are in Pauline theology and why this is such a big field with people who are reading the same set of texts and disagree really strenuously with each other. And, you know, like, we're not going to be able to solve all these problems for you on this show today, but it is important right. that we can, you know, that that people who listen to this can get a sense of the lay of the land and why there is so much disagreement about it, right? And I, I know sometimes the common response to these disputes is to sort of throw up your hands and be like, whatever i'm tempted by that sometimes i know you know i was talking to a friend the other day in the academy and i mentioned that my husband's a paul scholar and she said oh i'm sorry and uh you know that's uh, <laughs> yeah you know i i think that there's a yep. part of my goal in doing this is you know again i'm not gonna be able to explain any one of these things though you know i can point you to our good friend andrew Valera, a fellow grad and friend of the show has a yeah, has written extensively on this i can point you to the people who i have found really illuminating on this but we're not going to be able to solve these issues on this show. It's the, the the goal of this is to bring the debate to you and let you see where the, the difficulties are. So big picture, Dunn is going to argue that Sanders gave us a new perspective on Judaism, but not a new perspective on Paul. And he's going to argue that we can actually understand Paul as continuous, not discontinuous with Judaism as Sanders understood it. And that this is to accept that covenant and election are fundamental both to Judaism and to Paul, and is going to then argue that works of the law are distinctive badges, badges of identity and membership in the covenant people of God, which is to say constitutive of their identity as Jews, and is going to argue that Paul is objecting to the conflation of election with national and racial identity Mm -hmm. as Jews, and argues that instead faith in Christ, because he takes the objective reading, displaces works of the law as new badges of identity for Gentiles and not, and maybe also Jews. I don't remember where actually Dunn comes down on that particular issue. We've offered some critiques and alternative readings. There's much more we could say, and there's also much more, many more episodes we can do in the future. If any of these issues have hit your ear in a particular way, we can talk about more. There's, you know, you could also go listen to our Paula Fredrickson episodes. We've got mm-hmm. two of them where we tackle the Paul within Judaism camp directly. And of course, the Hayes and Stendhal episodes and the Wright episode where we take on some of these issues as well. But, you know, more to come. Uh, let us know what you think about this. And if you have any requests on specific 
responses to Dunn or post Dunn you'd like to see us cover, we'd be happy to do it, but probably not very soon because Ian needs a break. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Laura. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I've seen brighter stars than you I don't mind And just a reminder, Laura and I are not married to each other. <laughs> Laura's husband is John DePew. Go back and listen to our Hayes episode. Uh, I'm married to a completely different person. Ian is not a Paul scholar. Not at all. No. <laughs> <laughs>